All right, good morning. I want to welcome you to the third session of A Man and His Work. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Jim Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Been on staff for a little over seven years now. My wife, Julia, and I have five kids from ages 11 down to zero. We have a newborn. So I was tired before I even got here this morning, right? Um, But glad to be here, and it's my privilege to share with you this morning on the topic of escape. And so let me just tell you, when we were putting together a man and his work curriculum, and we kind of had our topics set, we were deciding who was going to teach each topic, and I somehow became the obvious choice to teach on escape. I don't know what that says about me, right? Maybe I'm an expert. Maybe I got a lot of experience in that area. Whatever the case is, you know, Bill, Matt, if you're listening, I'm not offended, in case you were wondering, right? So we're going to talk about escape. And I wanted to show you that Dodge Ram commercial from the Super Bowl. A lot of you probably saw that premiere um, during the Super Bowl, like I did. And if your response was anything similar to mine, um, my jaw went slack a little bit. And my conversation stopped, and I just kind of stared at the screen for a couple minutes because there was something about it that was incredibly appealing to me, right? There's something about farming. There's something about the ideas of hard work, of accomplishment, the difficulty in all of that. There's something about that that resonates with us, resonates with our soul as men because of the way we've been created in God's image to work, to accomplish. It's a fascinating idea. And so when we talk about work, we've given you four definitions, really, to help you think. we got a slide for this. The first one is work, we would say, is energy expended. And what I would tell you is this is not limited to your vocation. It's not limited to your job, right? There's all sorts of areas in your life that require energy from us. So parenting, if you have kids... You know that's difficult, right? It takes energy, takes time, takes hard work. Managing your finances well, taking care of your house, taking care of a car, whatever it is. There's all sorts of areas in life that require energy, and work is that energy expended. Rest, we would say, is energy recovered. And so sleep would be the most intense form of rest, right? But it's a way to regain that energy, to recover. Recreation is energy diverted, And so this could look really different. It could be going out and having coffee with a friend, having coffee with your wife, um, just relaxing. It might mean going on a hike. It might mean going on a bike ride. But whatever that is, it recreates you, re-energizes you, gets you ready to go back to re-engage in work. And then the last category is escape, which is what we're talking about this morning, energy corrupted. And so this does not recharge you, right? After you escape, you're not all excited to go back to work. You're not re-energized. It doesn't really produce anything. It doesn't really accomplish anything. We got a ton to say about that, so I'm going to move fast. But this is going to be recorded. You can go back and pick it up later if you need to. To start off with, when we talk about corruption, we would say corruption is part of the biblical story and is part of our story. Corruption is part of the biblical story, part of our story. We can't just blame Adam and Eve for everything that's wrong, right? We all have a unique personal contribution to the corruption of this world, to the evil in this world, to the frustration that we experience. So it's it's part of the biblical story, part of our story. We have a personal piece. 
And if you go back to Genesis 1 and open it up and read, you don't have to read very far to see that this world is corrupted, that sin has entered and messed some things up like Bill was talking about last week. But you look back in Genesis 1 and God created a world that's full of potential. Right, that's, that's why you have all this weird language about you got this tree, it has this kind of seed, it's reproducing according to its kind, the birds are reproducing and multiplying according to their kinds, the fish according to their kinds, that this world is moving, it's moving, it's full of potential, and it had a need. This is what Bill mentioned last week, the earth had a need, so God fashions the man from the earth corresponding to the earth to meet that need. And so man was created to cultivate all of that, to shape all of that, to help it produce things that would glorify God, right? But God didn't just leave him with that. God gave him some instructions. He made him responsible, right? God said, here's how you run this thing. Here's a way to live that's right. Don't do this, right? Adam had a responsibility to communicate those instructions to his wife and to others. And so Genesis 3 Shows us that story of the woman's autonomy. When she saw that the fruit was good, she reached out, she took it, she ate it, right? It's her autonomy. She's stepping forward. It shows us the story of man's passivity because it says he was right there with her. He's right beside her, watching the whole thing go down, right? Not doing anything. He's passive. If that's new language for you, then I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of our previous men's roundtable teaching where we talk about those ideas in a little more detail. But here's what happened. Man failed in his responsibility, right? He couldn't just stay in the garden. He failed in his responsibility with his helper. And so sin entered the world. The world got plunged into chaos. And so ever since the fall, you can open up the scriptures and read about any story in the Bible, and you're going to see corruption, You're going to find it all through the pages of the scriptures. We each have our own personal contribution. And because of that corruption, there's a frustration to our work, right? It's difficult. It doesn't go the way that it should. And so you can work really, really hard, and you can do lots of things right and put a lot of energy into something. It does not guarantee that it's going to go well for you. Just a personal example I'll give you is a couple weeks ago, I was out in Colorado at a business conference, and a little over four years ago, I was the co-founder of a company, and we had spent the last year modifying this camera to um, shoot in this um, certain type of way. There there was a little niche in the market, um, that uh, a group of people that we could help, and so we had put a lot of time and energy into developing this product. And then when the speaker, the organizer of this conference out in Colorado heard about it, he said, y'all got to come out and share about that, you know, talk to people about that and bring the camera. And so we did, you know, we bought the plane tickets, lined everything up, went out there. First day of the conference, we get out there and someone who has a little more clout in the industry brought up the same camera, had modified it in almost exactly the same way and was selling it. And everybody went crazy. Everybody loved it, right? And then we looked and our names were no longer on the agenda as presenters. And so it's very frustrating, right? You spend a lot of time, you spend a lot of energy, resources to do something. You work hard. It does not guarantee success, okay? It just doesn't. That's part of living and working in a fallen world like Bill talked about last week. And because of that, because of that frustration, that's one of the reasons escape is so appealing, 
right? You just want to get away. Sometimes you just want to throw in the towel. You want to give up or you want to kind of become domineering and take over and make things work, right? Makes escape appealing. So when we talk about escape, let me give you a working definition. Escape is when I hide from responsibility. Escape is when I hide from responsibility. And just like Adam hid, you go back and you read Genesis 3, after he sinned, he's in the garden, he's pretending to be a vegetable, right? Here's a man who had just done an incredible job of taxonomy, and now when God comes walking in the garden, he's hiding. He's hiding from the Almighty. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think our intelligence fell on some level after the fall, right? But escape is when I hide from responsibility. It's refusing to accept the fact that I'm responsible, that God made me responsible. It kind of believes this lie that my life can be pleasing to God apart from responsibility, apart from sacrifice on my part. And usually escape takes on two forms, okay? And let, me, let me introduce you to a couple of new um, words, ways to think about it. Nothing special about this. It just kind of cleanses our palate and helps us think. So you got a slide for it. We would say escape usually takes the form of either indolence or exigence. It takes the form of indolence or exigence. All right, now we'll, we'll flesh this out more this morning. But we would say on one side, indolence undervalues work. It's an undervaluing of work and it results in escape from work. The word literally means to avoid activity. It's used as a medical term for a wound that's unresponsive to treatment. It won't heal, right? Treating the wound doesn't really do anything. It doesn't respond. So indolence avoids activity because of a dislike of work. Similar to laziness, that would elevate comfort and pleasure over responsibility. It stems from a proud unbelief that God doesn't reward my work or he will not hold me accountable to provide for other people. And indolence fails to see how my job connects to those 10 big ideas that Matt gave the first week. It doesn't see how my job makes the world better, how it serves other people, how it brings glory to God. Indolence shirks responsibility, runs away from work, seeks the feeling of accomplishment or satisfaction without really having to expend energy, without really having to work hard. On the other side of the spectrum, we have exigence, which would be an overvaluing of work, right? And that, that results in escape into work. It overvalues work, results in escape into work. And the word literally means something that's pressing, demanding, critical, or urgent, right? Has to be done. This is the idea of putting too much weight on work. And so workaholism would be on this end of the spectrum. But it's someone who runs towards work, neglecting other responsibilities God has given them, also driven by proud unbelief. It's the belief that God isn't providing what I need, or he's not going to provide what I think I need to take care of my family. What he's given me is not enough. It can be driven out of fear that I won't be able to have the quality of life, the house I want, the house I need, the car I want, without working 60 hours a week every week. It abandons responsibility by running into work. And so this is like Matt's Liberty Bridge analogy, right? Work cannot bear that kind of weight, cannot bear the weight of your soul. And so let me just say, I'm creating some general categories here, right? These are not hard and fast rules. So on one side, I've listed comfort and pleasure as motivations for indolence, but somebody could work really, really hard for 40 years 
just so they can be indolent in their retirement age, right? That could be a motivator for them. Accomplishment and value, finding your identity in work could be motivators apart from your salary. It's not always about making money. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. But generally speaking, comfort and pleasure would be motives for indolence, while power, affirmation, value, identity would be on the exigent side. But here's what I want you to see. Both of them abandon responsibility, right? Both of them abandon responsibility. So let's look at indolence in a little detail. And the scriptures are full of examples of this, right? You don't, you don't have to read. It's not very hard to find examples of this. But one story kind of kind of grabbed my attention in particular. It's the story of Onan from Genesis chapter 38. We've got a slide for this, so you don't have to turn there. <clears throat> the story of Onan. Genesis 38, starting in verse 6, it says, In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground as prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother, so the Lord killed him. Took his life too, right? And if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard the story of Onan um, used as a way to teach people not to masturbate, right? Especially in youth group. That's how it got used. So much so that Onanism and masturbation are synonyms. Look it up. Or don't, okay? (laughs) Never mind. Forget I said that. Don't look it up. Don't look it up. But listen, that's not what's happening in this passage. Onan is not masturbating. He's actually having sex. So good for him, right? But to understand this story, you've got to understand Leveret Law. Deuteronomy 25.5 will explain this to us. We've got a slide for it. It says, if two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her, have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. Okay, that was his responsibility. And that's the problem with his sin. It's not that he's masturbating. It's that he's abandoning responsibility. Now, masturbation is most likely a sin, right? So if you're doing it, you should stop, go listen to Quest for Purity. But that's not what's happening in this passage He is not taking on responsibility. His brother had died, and he had a responsibility, according to the law, to care for her and to make sure his brother's name continued in Israel. But instead, what he did is he took on pleasure without responsibility. Okay, you see that? He didn't mind having sex with her as often as he wanted. But what he didn't want is to be responsible for her and to be responsible for raising a child. Okay, and doing what God had called him to do. Verse 9 says he was unwilling to have a child that would not be his own heir. He didn't want to care for someone. He didn't want to provide for someone that God made him responsible for because it didn't match up with his own interests. And it infuriates God to the point where God simply kills him, just kills him, right? infuriates God. It's a prime example of indolence, someone seeking pleasure 
above responsibility, all right? But, but here's what I would say. Indolence can take on lots of different forms, right? Let me just give you a few ideas, a few examples of that. In general, it would be characterized by making excuses for work or doing fake work. That's how it abandons responsibility. So disability, welfare, could, be- could become a form of indolence, right? If you just don't want to work, you just want to take a paycheck, but you don't really want to go find a job and expend energy. That's a form of indolence. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, if any man will not work, neither will he eat, right? It's a biblical idea. Hobbies can cross the line from recreation into indolence. Now, we're going to talk about recreation in a little more detail in a couple of weeks, but let me give you one example. You ever... Um, you ever drive to work and just turn on sports radio, sports talk, right? And then maybe when you get to work, you leave it on the radio, or when you're coming home, you're listening to sports talk. If you listen to it multiple times a day, here's what you'll discover. It's the same five guys, right? Same five guys. They call in all day long, show after show. I mean, there's not hundreds of people calling in, right? It's half a dozen guys. They're calling in every show. They're criticizing what the announcers are saying because they know all the stats for their favorite teams, right? I mean, going back to the 50s, it's ridiculous. And then they know all the stats for their players from high school, college, professional level. I mean, it's amazing how much time they must have spent in school studying that, right? But it's the same guys calling in day after day, show after show. That is a form of indolence. You say, how's that? Because they're putting all this energy into something that doesn't really matter. It's not really accomplishing anything, right? It's not really producing anything. It's a form of escape for them. They become an expert on something. And if they have a job, they go to that job and they're a bump on the log. They're not really bringing any of that energy to their employer. All that energy is bleeding off into another area. They become an expert on something that doesn't really make a difference in the world, doesn't really accomplish anything. It doesn't really matter, okay? <clears throat> let, me give you, um, let me give you a real practical example that guys in my age group, um, mid to late 30s, fall into all the time, okay? It's video games. It's World of Warcraft. It's Call of Duty, right? And if you don't know what those words are, good for you. You're in a good spot, right? We'll talk about exigence in a little while. But it's video games. And as men, because we are made in God's image, because we are wired up to accomplish and achieve, that's a need in our soul, video games become a substitute for that. In a similar way that pornography becomes a substitute for intimacy. You have an intimacy need, right? But instead of channeling that energy into your marriage towards your spouse, that gets channeled into pornography and masturbation, right? Video games, same thing. Instead of going out in the real world and accomplishing and bringing all that energy into my job or or my vocation, then I bleed that energy off into a video game. And it feels like it needs, meets a need in my soul, right? Because I feel like I've accomplished something. That pursuing, that protecting, that providing energy gets channeled into that way. And so I was watching, um, I was watching Monday Night Football last last year. Stayed up late and watched a watched a game with my dad. And I noticed it was like eleven fifteen at night, and every commercial that came on was for a video game. It was like for Halo Four or the new Call of Duty game. 
And I thought to myself, man, whoever purchased airtime is an idiot because there's not really any 14-year-old boys staying up late and watching pro football, right? Come to find out, you know what the average age of the video game player is? It's 37, 37 years old. They're not idiots. They knew exactly who they were marketing to, all right? It's a form of indolence, a form of false work, false accomplishment. And so I'll just, I'll just tell you, this past year, I sat in a counseling meeting where um, the wife was leaving the husband. She's done. Taking their two kids, moving to mama's house, right? And the reason she was doing that is because her husband spent about 40 to 45 hours a week playing World of Warcraft. He couldn't stop. Couldn't get out of it. So he had a full-time job. You know, he was working 40 hours a week, but he'd come home, scarf down dinner while she puts the kids to bed. And he would play until about midnight, 1 a.m., get up to do it all again, play all day Saturday, all day Sunday. But he'd put all this energy into building this virtual character, right? It's a virtual accomplishment. And it, was, it felt like it was meeting a need for him, but it's not really accomplishing anything. It's a form of indolence. So how do you know when it crosses the line? How do you know when golf or hunting, or fishing, or going to the lake, or playing video games. How do you know when it crosses the line? Watching too much football. How do you know? Let me give you a couple questions to ask, okay? Do you come back energized and ready to work? Do you come back ready to re-engage and get back to work? If you don't, you've probably escaped. Do you know more than all the people around you about a subject that's unrelated to your vocation and doesn't really help anybody, okay? If that's true of you, that's probably a form of indolence, a form of escape for you. All right, just a couple questions to ask yourself. All right, now on the other side, let's talk about exigence in a little detail. Exigence, like we said, overvalues work. It's an overvaluing of work that results in escape into work. Let me give you an example from the scriptures. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We have slides for this. We got it on the screen. Most likely the words of Solomon, who accomplished an incredible amount. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting at verse 4, he says this. I also tried to find meaning. Okay, don't miss that. I tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves, bought slaves, both men and women. Others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold. Okay, lots of money. The treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure, even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So here's a man, probably accomplished more than any other man on earth. Probably had more power, more resources than anyone else on earth, right? He could, he could buy whatever his heart desired. 
Whatever he wanted to build, whatever he wanted to accomplish, he had the freedom and the power to do that. He worked really, really hard. He created some amazing things that people all over the world came to see. But where did it lead him? Skip down to verse 18. He says, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. So I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God, for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? So a couple things we can learn from this passage really quickly, really easily, right? There's an end to your life. We all got the same thing coming, right? We're all going to die. One day it's all going to end. And nothing that we can accomplish can prevent that. Nothing we can accomplish can prevent that. All your accomplishment is going to end just like your life will end. And then once your life ends, there's more frustration, right? Because you have no control over how your accomplishments are used. You could go out and do something really, really great for the world, right? And make a lot of money, millions of dollars. Well, guess what? You have no say over who comes behind you and takes those resources, and maybe they'll use them in a wise way. Maybe they're going to squander it like a fool. You have no control over that. You don't know. You don't know whether what you accomplish is going to be used for good, it's going to be pleasing to God, glorifying to Him, or if it's going to be squandered and used in a, in a harmful way. And so work and accomplishment cannot bring ultimate meaning, cannot bring enduring life, cannot bring lasting satisfaction. So where does he land? In verse 24, he says, just just enjoy it. Just find satisfaction, right? Don't make it an ultimate thing. It cannot be all that your life is about. So let me give you some other examples of exigence, okay? And And I'll say, exigence is much more acceptable in our culture than indolence, right? I mean, the guy that's putting in 60 hours a week, every week, we look at that guy and go, man, he's a hard worker. He's awesome, you know? But the guy who's the expert armchair quarterback or playing video games every night, we're like, you're lazy, you know? So exigence is more culturally acceptable to us, but it still abandons responsibility. So you might be saying, well, how how is that true? I mean, I can see how the, the, the lazy guy, right? I can see how he's doing that. How is the guy who's working all the time doing that? You ever, you ever heard the sayings, the cobbler's children always have holes in their shoes, right? Or the barber's kids always have long hair, Those sayings point to the idea of someone who is neglecting a responsibility in front of them because of their vocation. You see that? God has made us responsible in some ways. And so we can't just work all the time. You can't just escape into work, right? The guy who's always at the office neglecting his family, he's living an unbalanced life. 
He always takes the work phone call while he's on a date with his wife, or he never goes out on a date with his wife because he's too busy working, right? Sound familiar? The work call always trumps a conversation with a family member, right? It's always more important. Probably a sign you're getting your value, your identity from work. And so you might say, well, what if I'm single? I'm not married. I don't have any kids. You know, I've got more time. You do have more time. That is true. All right, if you're single, you don't have a family, you have a lot more time and you can actually spend more time at work. But what I would tell you is you have a responsibility to be engaged in the world in other ways besides your vocation. You have a responsibility for recreation, you have a responsibility for rest. Work cannot be all that your life is about, even if you're single, right? You need to make sure you're engaged in other ways. And so many times, overworking becomes a God for us, right? It becomes a way for us to get what we think we need or what we want, and God really hasn't given that to us. And so maybe it might, there might be something driving it. Maybe it's a private Christian education for your kids, right? God really hasn't given that to you. Really doesn't fit in your budget, but you figured out if you take on a second job and you work an extra 20 hours a week, you can pay for that Christian education. Okay, that's a form of exigence. It's putting your hope in work, using work as a God to try to bring you what you think you need, and it causes you, here's what I'd say, it would cause you to neglect the real responsibilities that God has given you and put in front of you. Okay, maybe it's working to pay for a bigger house or a newer car. It doesn't really fit in your budget. I was not really given that to you. But it doesn't always have to be about money. All right, let me give you another example. Any of you ever seen the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Look at y'all. You lie. You lie. Nobody raising their hand. Oh, my goodness. All right, I won't make, I won't make you confess, right? Here's, here's one of the reasons I hate that show. Because when I watch it, now this is not always the case, but most often they'll have somebody on there that's really, really involved in their community, right? So it'll be this dad who's got like a dozen kids, right? Nothing wrong with having a dozen kids. I have plenty, believe me, okay? But he's got a lot of kids and he's spending about 10 hours a day working in his community, volunteering at some community center, right? Meanwhile, you go look at his house and there's a hole in the roof and his three-year-old doesn't have a bed to sleep in. You know, they're sleeping on a beanbag, getting wet every night or something ridiculous like that. So they come in and fix his house for him. I would tell you that is a form of exigence, okay? That is someone who's getting their value and their identity through what they are doing while they're neglecting responsibilities that God has put in front of them, okay? It's a form of exigence. Now, don't get me wrong, Serving in the community, great thing, right? We need more of that. I'm just saying you can get your value and your identity wrapped up into that and ignore what God has put in front of you. God created the man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. But if Adam had kept his nose in the dirt the whole time, he would have neglected other responsibilities that God gave him. He had a responsibility to his helper, all right? Let me show you a picture. I got a picture of a highway and there was a study done several years ago. That's a fascinating study to me. Um, but it surveyed a bunch of people and it asked them um, to guess the length of the dividing lines on the highway. So how long do you think those are? And then it asked people to estimate how long that they thought the distance between the dividing lines were. And so what's fascinating about it is not that people got it wrong. 
It's that the, the, they missed it by a huge, huge margin. Their average answer was, they, they said the dividing lines were about two feet long, right? And then they said there's probably four feet between them. That was the average answer. The truth is, those lines, the standard is that those lines are 10 feet long and there's 30 feet between them, okay? So they missed it by a huge amount, huge amount. And the reason they missed it is because the only time they really paid attention to them is when they were in a car moving between 50 and 70 miles an hour, right? And so here, here's why I give you that, show you that picture, because your circumstances will dictate your perception, okay? Your circumstances will dictate your perception, they're going to change the way you see things, the way you think about things. And so let me, let me just give you a few ideas so that you can try to, try to figure out if you're escaping toward indolence or toward exigence, okay? Now, the, like, these are not hard and fast rules. These are not applicable to every situation, but just some ideas I'm going to throw out there, right? If you are escaping into indolence, let me give you a few thoughts. You can't be committed at church because you have to keep your weekends open for recreation. Be at the lake, golf, hunting, fishing. You just you can't, can't really be committed, can't really serve because you gotta keep your weekends open, right? If you've ever taken time off work to play a video game, yes, that happens, okay? If you've ever taken time off work to play a video game or if you miss church because you stay up too late playing a game or watching TV, it's a form of indolence. If your wife every night is always bathing your kids and putting them to bed because you need to relax at night, even though she's been with them all day, okay, that's a form of escape. If you call in sick when you actually feel good enough to work, might be evidence that you are indolent. If you're undisciplined about sleep because you're spiritually tired, you're emotionally tired, but you're not physically weary, might show you're not really doing anything, okay? If you can never meet deadlines or if you rarely meet deadlines. If you're not given much responsibility in your job and you're good with that. You're not really striving for anything. Okay, you're not really improving your skills in your vocation, but you become an expert on something that's totally unrelated. If you're short-tempered when you don't get your preferred form of amusement, okay, might be a form of idolatry for you. You might care a little too much about it. If you ever find yourself using the phrase, I'm bored, okay, if you say that often, might show that you're indolent in some ways. It at least means you're doing a bad job with rest, recreation, or work, okay? If you don't have any clear, tangible goals in your job, might show you're escaping toward indolence. Let me give you some thoughts on the other end of the spectrum, okay? If you're escaping towards exigence, if you're constantly checking your email after you get home from work, your mind cannot disengage from work, can't really be with your family. You get home, but you're still working. You've just changed spots, okay? Might show you got a little too much identity value wrapped up in work, putting too much time there. If family time is something that you schedule and then you check it off the box, check it off the list, right? You don't really have room for unexpected conversations with your spouse or with your kids, okay? You got to schedule all of that. If you're constantly under pressure in your job because you don't have any margins for mistakes, right? No room to screw up. We got to get this perfect. Got to get it right all the time, driving. If there's no one else you can trust to do a project, you can't really delegate, 
Okay, you gotta do everything yourself. Probably means your value, your identity, wrapped up in your work. If you get angry when someone doesn't think that what you're doing is as valuable as what you think it is. If it makes you angry, somebody doesn't fully understand or appreciate the sacrifices you're making at work. If you can't go to rest or sleep when there's tasks that are left unaccomplished, you just can't, you can't go to bed. You're up late every night because you're, ah, oh, I gotta get this done, I gotta get this done. There are seasons to our life, okay? There are busy times, but on a consistent basis, if you can't rest until you have knocked out your task list, probably escaping into exigence. If you write off people that don't share your drive or your work ethic, if you undervalue them, if you can't take a vacation because of your work schedule, right? Never really have time to take the family to do something that's enjoyable. A work call is always more important. Project is always on the horizon. If you think your company would be more productive if every single employee were just like you, all right? Probably escaping into exigence. So you don't value different approaches to work. Last one, if all the events on your calendar are tentative, depending on your work schedule, you can't commit to non-work events because of your job. So like I said, don't take those as exact ways to measure where you are, okay? But use them as a way to think realistically about where you are, how you're using work, or how you're running from work. So where does that leave us? Should we just try to like not, not work too much and not work too little? I don't think that's the answer. The goal is not to be halfway between indolence and exigence, right? That's not good. The gospel helps us with this. And there's a space for this in your notes. The gospel calls us to accept responsibility and have a healthy ambition in our work. Calls us to accept responsibility and have a healthy ambition in our work. So let me, let me share this passage of scripture with you. It comes from Luke chapter 9. We got a slide for it. It's Luke 9, 51 through 56. It says, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Burn them up. Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. All right, Here, here's one of the things I love about that passage is we don't often think that the God of the universe is under a time constraint. But Jesus was under a time constraint. The reason he had come to earth to offer himself as a sacrifice, that, that goal, the reason he came, that time was drawing near, okay? That's what it means when it says the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven. So he's under a time constraint. God's appointed time for him to be in Jerusalem was at the Passover. It was approaching, right? So he's under a time constraint. And it says he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The Greek literally means he set his face toward Jerusalem. He has a goal. It's an intentional moment that he is pursuing the reason he came to earth. Okay, and if you read back in the chapter, you read a little context, Jesus is up in Galilee, which is in the north, right? He's going to Jerusalem, which is in the south. And so there's a straight line there. The problem is that straight line is through a place called Samaria. And if you know 
biblical history, you know that the Samaritans and the Jews didn't really like each other, all right, because the Samaritans were kind of like half-breeds. The Jews despised them. They, they, had inter, they were Jewish people that had intermarried with pagan nations. They kind of had their own place of worship, their own law, and so they didn't, they didn't really get along. Jews did not like them. Samaritans weren't really crazy about the Jews either. And Jesus, you remember in John chapter 4, had engaged the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, kind of broke those cultural stipulations, right? And so Jesus is not going to do what a Jewish person usually did. A traditional Jew would not go through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan River and go all the way around, go down, come back into Jerusalem, right? Jesus is not doing that. He's making a beeline through Samaria for Jerusalem. He's under a time constraint. He has a goal in mind. So he sends messengers ahead to this Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival, right? Well, when they find out that he's on his way to Jerusalem, what do they do? They go, you know what, Jesus, on second thought, no thank you. I mean, we, we really don't want you here. You're going to, you're going to Jerusalem? You, you need to find a different way to go. We don't, we're not going to welcome you here, right? And when his disciples hear about it, what's their response? They go crazy. They're like, do you know who this is? Do you know who you're messing with? I mean, we have got something to do, right? Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven? We will burn these guys up. We'll get them out of the way. We will handle it, Jesus. Please, can we? Please, can we? I mean, they are jumping to try to punish these people, right? Well, what does Jesus do? He turns and he rebukes them, all right? And then it says he went on to a different village. You ever experience anything like this in your job where you're trying to do something that's good, that's actually gonna help somebody? You're trying to get something done. It's gonna, be, it's gonna benefit your company. It's gonna help somebody. And somebody for a dumb reason makes it difficult. A dumb reason, Right? makes your job more difficult, makes you have to take a longer way around, makes you miss a deadline, how do you respond? And here's what I would say. A healthy ambition avoids two extremes. It avoids being domineering or being disengaged. Okay, a healthy ambition avoids being domineering or disengaged. Okay, Jesus didn't just go, oh man, well that stinks. I mean, we're going to have to take the long way around now. I mean, I sent out messengers and took a while for them to get there and get back to us, and now we're going to have to go to a different village. You know what, boys? I don't think we're going to make it in time. I mean, maybe next year, because we're going to miss the Passover. I mean, he didn't just give up. He didn't go into despair. He wasn't disengaged, okay? Neither was he domineering like the disciples. He didn't just say, oh, man, these guys... I mean, they have no idea what they're about to screw up. I'm just going to get them out of the way. I mean, too bad for them, right? They're going to they're, they're die in this process, okay? He's not domineering. If you, want some, if you want a little extra homework, you want to do some study on this, look at the book of Nehemiah. It's a great example in the scriptures of somebody. God has put something in his heart to accomplish, okay? But he doesn't defraud anybody in the process. He doesn't take advantage of people. He gets promoted, gets all this responsibility, has a really hard job to do in a short amount of time. He's a manager in a blue-collar industry, but he takes care of people. He provides for people, doesn't abuse people. He's not domineering, okay? You can also look at Paul in Acts chapter 20, where he's talking to the elders, 
And he's telling them that he is going to finish the course that God laid out for him without defrauding anyone, without taking advantage of anyone. Okay? Not domineering, not disengaged. I can accept responsibility, okay, because my value, my, my identity comes from being made in God's image. The gospel frees us from this kind of attitude, okay? This is in your notes. The gospel frees us from escape because it removes the idolatry of self. Because it's not about me anymore. I'm not the most important. Work is not just about me, okay? There's something that God is doing to provide for others, to bring glory to himself. Gospel frees me from the need to escape because it removes the idolatry of self. I can accept responsibility knowing that I'm valuable not because of what I can accomplish, okay? Not because of what I'm accomplished. I'm valuable because Christ died for me. It frees me from that need to be important, right? I also know that God will reward my labor, he will ultimately bless me. He will ultimately bring me comfort, bring me meaning, bring me, bring me rest. Okay? So I don't find life in the pleasure that I can experience. Neither do I find life in what I can accomplish. I find my life in Jesus. The fact that he gave his life for me. Right? Let me pray for you. And then we're going to have some time to break up into our groups and discuss. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for dying for us, for giving us freedom uh, from the need to escape, um, just to try to make life about experiencing pleasure or life about accomplishing everything that, everything that we can. And so we pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would work through us, that you would expose areas where we are escaping Show us what it looks like to repent, Lord, and turn towards you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.